This is One North Stories. Our goal here is quite simple. We provide hyper-local, brand-based storytelling at the intersection of science, technology, and business here in Singapore with a global perspective. We are starting with a launch series focused on technology startups, and then plan to take the podcast broader, telling our stories, your stories, about the Singapore deep tech ecosystem. Whether you work as a venture capitalist on Sand Hill Road or in Southeast Asia, already doing R&D in Singapore, or perhaps a student dreaming big about technology, or someone in between. Join us to learn about the exciting technology being developed in our labs in Singapore, their translation journeys to market, and the inspirational people coming together to make yesterday's dream reality. If you have future episode ideas, segment ideas, or want to partner with us on this exciting journey, please get in touch. Our contact details are in the show notes. These are our stories. We hope they inspire you to create your own. And now, on to the show. So we published the New England Journal of Medicine. It was just a mere publication, but it did, didn't really mean anything if it's just a poster on a wall, right? And then we figured out that, okay, let's start off with this project. Let's not keep it as a poster hanging on the wall. Let's make something. So Knowledge Genetics is basically a company that develops genetic testing kits and software so that hospital systems and our clients can run personalized medicine programs. Our goal is that DNA information or life-saving DNA information should be as ubiquitous as your blood type. You don't really need the information of your blood type every day or every time, but the moment that you need it probably would be life-saving. For this launch episode, we have a guest host, Claire Bellis of Genome Institute of Singapore. She sat down with the co-founders of Knowledge Genetics. Levy, Astrid, Sandro, and JJ share their founding story from GIS. We start with Astrid in a 2013 New England Journal of Medicine article on adverse drug reactions to Dapsone, which is used to treat leprosy. Wanting to build something, she teams up with Levy, who is at GIS doing a pre-business school internship, and then Sandro, who runs a translational research lab at GIS. The result is a $5 test kit helping doctors preemptively save lives of leprosy patients. Since then, it's been a whirlwind for Knowledge Genetics, growing as a company, helping run COVID ops on the ground in Indonesia, and continuing to build up genetic test kits and software to enable hospital systems and doctors run personalized medicine programs. Join Claire for the main interview with Levy, Astrid, and Sandro, which is followed by some insights with JJ. And now, on to the interview. Hello, everyone. It's Claire Bellis here from Genome Institute of Singapore with One North Stories. Today, we have a very exciting episode, the spin-off story of Nala Genetics from Genome Institute of Singapore. We have present with us three of the four co-founders, and we'll go around the room, starting with Sandro. Hello. Thanks, Claire, first of all, for inviting us. My name is Sandro, but my full name is Alexander Lejava. I'm originally from Georgia and honored to be a co-founder of Nala Genetics. Thanks. Working at GIS is that for almost 10 years. And Astrid? I was formerly from GIS. I'm Astrid, or Astrid Arwantel. I came to Singapore as a scholar to do my PhD. I think I started from being an intern all the way to being a PhD student, then a 
postdoc. And that's when we finally came together and met the co-founding team and did something about the work that we published from Genome Institute of Singapore. And when you say we published, that's quite humble because I believe that the data or the work was really emanating from the research focus your PhD was looking at. So if we pause for a second on how everyone met, could you give us a, a rundown on what the interest was to become the intern and then move on to the PhD and then move into the postdoc and then obviously meeting as a group? Right, right. Astrid. So I always wanted to do more under human biomedical sciences bit, but in Indonesia, at that point at least, it was still very lacking. So we're very much focused on food science and agriculture, but the human biomedical bit of it is not there. So the closest place to hotel in Indonesia would be Singapore. And I didn't want to be so far from my family because my father is actually on a wheelchair. I, I really wanted to be close to my father. I got the Singa scholarship. And then I got really lucky to work in JJ's group because he has so many projects. And I learned so much that these projects, they cannot be done by the lab alone. It has to be very collaborative because the number of samples that I'm analyzing is humongous, right? To get to a discovery point, you need that power. And I think that was a lot of the intrinsic lessons that I learned from the lab on networking and so on. And then we were lucky to work on a project with China. They had a lot of samples, close to 10,000, to discover a very rare syndrome, actually, of people who get this adverse reaction due to Dapsone. Yet, people are still treating with the free drug that comes from Novartis, or WHO is distributing that. But some people in Asia get adverse reaction. And I got to know from the project that um, apparently Southeast Asians and people who are close to the, to the east side of Indonesia, uh, or the Papua region, the Aborigines, the Melanesians, are the ones with the highest frequency of the biomarker that were discovered. And we published the New England Journal of Medicine. It was just a mere publication, but it did, didn't really mean anything if it's just a poster on a wall, right? Somehow Levy came in to do her internship before she did her Harvard Business degree. So then she said, I wanted to understand Southeast Asia more on the biomedical side as well. And so she came in and she said, oh, you're an Indonesian too? Oh, let's do something about our country. And then we figured out that, okay, let's start off with this project. Let's not keep it as a poster hanging on the wall. Let's make something. And who can make something? Only Sandro can make something. Only Sandro can make an essay that's cheap enough, easy to use. And to just see if the person actually has that biomarker. It, which is actually Sandro's niche area, converting a finding that gets published. Sandro has that niche skill of being able to transform that into a yeah, patient-ready yeah. diagnostic. Correct, correct. Maybe I can take off now. Yes. Yes, I'm leading translation research lab, GIS, and recently it was converted to, we call it Center for Genome Diagnostics because it has too many functions. We are running two regulated labs under College of American Pathologists and also under ISO 1345 for medical devices. Actually, this is a great example how we can contribute to the society, how to make impact from discovery to the product. As Astrid mentioned, even the discovery process in all so many parties, and finally they came up with a brilliant publication regarding the discovery of new causal side effect of Dapson. What was the next was to translate this, and that's how they approached me. And I've been working with Levy and Astrid very closely on that. We started um, assay discovery, their development, and we managed to do this development under our lab. We are spin-off, we are engaging with colleagues from Indonesia, healthcare. We managed to establish those tests thanks to those joint efforts. Those tests are running in Indonesia. They're procuring to Knowledge Genetics now commercially. 
uh, about 500 to 1,000 tests a year. And they're running it under more like a grant. So the patients never pay out of pocket. It's covered by the Ministry of Health. Very rural areas they have leprosy. This is terrible disease. Very way, rare. But I'm very proud of this story because due to our efforts, they are saving lives in Indonesia. They it think, oh, you're cursed. And now they are testing before prescribing drug, which is very powerful and very effective. Now we're testing people using our assays. This is excellent example of transactional work and for work from discovery happened in GIS, assay development happened in GIS, then we transferred assays for kit production to our spin-off, GIS spin-off, ASTA spin-off, and finally we, we reached uh, patients. We tried our best to come up with as affordable assay as possible. Also. That's the biggest thing, right? Because so, we need to make sure that it's still cost-effective, and I think that's the value add. It's not the technology itself that is accurate. So accuracy is also one thing that I'm really proud of for this little essay that is like $5. But yeah, the cost and the simplicity to use as well. All, All right. right. So uh, since we've got Levy joining us now, we're yeah. at three quarters of the co-founders. JJ will follow up. Levy, we need to go back to you in terms of what inspired you for science, what inspired you for Nylogenetics? What's your background story? Yeah, well, I have, well, in high school, you have to pick, I guess, like science, social science or ling linguistics, like back home. And I've always liked sciences. I didn't know I was going to do it this far. But then I think in college, I continued to do science. And then the life-changing moment was getting accepted to business school early so that in the two years before business school, I could do whatever I wanted. Any other rational kind of option, you would try to go to like a professional career. But mm. because I thought I could take a risk, I thought, okay, maybe working in a life sciences institute would be fun. And it was close to home. Perfect. So I applied to Genome Institute of Singapore for whatever reason I got accepted. And then started working with wonderful people such as Sandro, Astrid, and JJ. And realized that these people are the people that I really wanted to work with for a long, long time. And even as I saw different people that I've met in business school and other places, it seemed like I would not be learning as much about the world more than I was learning from the people that I've met here. So I felt like it was a really good thing to stick to. Oh, excellent. Yeah. Can I add on a little bit? When Levy mentioned about this uh, working relationship and so on, mm -hmm. I think it is very important to be comfortable. Otherwise, it will be, can be difficult to work with each other. And you could see when I entered, how was our relationship with Astrid, Levy? So we feel like easy, very easy to work together. We understand each other and we are like a family. I think when, when I miss them, like I miss my family members sometimes and so on. So that is very important, this kind of relationship. Yeah, I can tell in the room, everyone is smiling and agreeing with what Sandra is saying. And obviously this is not the same truth for a lot of other startups. There is friction or difficulties, but it's probably one of those foundational key to the success of what occurred at Nylogenetics. It's very hard to find complementary, not just skill sets, but personalities. So I think that is one thing that I feel like really, really blessed with this, with this co-founding team. Very simple. When we see each other, we are smiling, we are happy. And now that we've explored backgrounds and also looked at the different relationships that have inspired or continued to inspire the group, I'm thinking if we could look at what's really spurred on the company in the last two to three years. That has been a challenging time, but if you can contrast changes that have occurred pre and post pandemic, it's going to be quite an interesting story. I'll start and then I let the others jump in as well. So the past two, three years has been, I think, you know, a COVID basically. <laughs> so like how a lot of companies like dealt with it. In the beginning, when we saw how much change it was creating in the world, we had two options. 
One was to stick to what we were doing and, you know, not pretend, but try to go as much as possible to not go towards anything related to COVID. And it was a viable strategy at the time because we thought it was going to end in six months or however many months it was. And then as time goes, and I was stuck in Indonesia, you were in Singapore, Sandro, you were in Singapore as well. It was a completely different world. And we, especially in Indonesia, we saw that actually the country needed a lot of help. And we started getting just requests on how to even run a PCR lab. I, I don't know if it was an actual conversation, but over time, we started realizing, hey, actually, we need, they're willing to, to pay for it. They need the help. And obviously, nobody was thinking about prevention of adverse drug reactions at the time. And so we had to kind of, I guess, answer that call. And it ended up being like one and a half year journey, at least. But at the same time, I think we made important decisions where in Singapore, we decided to build our own lab. Previously, we were kind of latching onto Sandro's lab, latching on <laughs> different labs. And it was challenging for Astrid. I think Astrid can tell more about that. And I think that was a really good decision overall that really spurred a lot of different ideas and innovations that, that came afterwards. We tried a bunch of stuff that didn't work out. We tried building a model to predict COVID-19. We tried building risk prediction for COVID-19. The one that stuck was the saliva collection kit for COVID-19 that ended up being used for elderly and children. And then now we're using that quick spit to actually collect other DNA types that we're yet running for other types of use cases. Then there's a lot of things that we've tried. And I think that was particularly that stuck. And we built a lot of business operations during that time. So we had a, previously we were a very product centric company. And then we started having like business operations, client operations or whatever that is. And then nurses and all these things that actually collect the samples and did consultations. So lots of trial and error on that as well. Yeah, we ran a COVID lab for six months with a partner in Indonesia. We set up with a container and just ran to support the need of the COVID test. But I think the rest of that that we set up was a lot of in the rural areas as well to support the need of testing that did not exist in that part of the world. When you say testing and touching on what Levy mentioned, this is basic. When I say basic, it's basic to us, but basic how to run a PCR. Yeah. Yeah, I think when she mentioned, to Levy and Dalsri mentioned, they were readiness to run PCR. Luckily, they were ready. That's what translational research lab is about. I'm happy that the knowledge they took, they well utilized in the for real case, which yeah, was... Yeah, uh, so true. Uh, we were like, what was Sandro's configuration of the laboratory? <laughs> we you copied know, so much. <laughs> template addition room, sample preparation, yeah, yeah, we copied yeah, yeah, everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's yeah, good. Because otherwise you would not know the best practice and we learned it here. Yeah, yeah. I think that's, that, that's uh, luckily uh, they were ready and when they mentioned that they are going to run COVID-related uh, labs, I was very confident that they could do it very well thanks to our joint efforts and learning experience. And I heard that they were learning lessons during that time, which is really interesting to share because obviously shows there's innovation and risk appetite as well. And I know that it's very difficult to avoid talking about COVID. I think we've got that section of it out of the discussion in this particular interview. And maybe we can step back to the beginning and how the beginning has culminated in what the actual platform at Nala Genetics is without discussing how COVID was related to that so that we can really know what are the core features at Nala Genetics from the beginning and that also exists now. So Knowledge Genetics is basically a company that develops genetic testing kits and software so that hospital systems and our clients can run personalized medicine programs. Our goal is that DNA information or life-saving DNA information should be as ubiquitous as your blood type. You don't really need the information of your blood type every day or every time, but the moment that you need it probably would be life-saving. We didn't know how to say it this way when we started out. We started out with the leprosy 
kit, which spun out from a program called Sapphire. It was an LCG, was it an LCG grant? It was a grant. It was an LCG grant. And it focused more on like pharmacovigilance. Pharmacogenomics was one part of that. And then out of that came out two or three kits. One was the 1301. The other one was the panel of five genes that eventually became PGX core. Which is the technology that we're commercializing now. Right. Yeah. And the other one was HLA-B1502. It went from one target, one disease, which is leprosy and HLA-B1301 to reduce the chances of dapsone to Mm -hmm. now like five genes and 180 drugs or something like that. Now we're launching a local virtual genome sequencing platform for risk prediction and other personalization of drugs, nutrition and screening this quarter and the next quarter is pretty exponential. But I think the one thing that stayed true throughout was the ability to interpret. So one of the yes. things that we thought was key, you know, Sandro gave us this knowledge and wisdom how to design kit or even validate this whole thing. What we saw in the market was that even if we can read it as accurate as possible, doctors don't want to use it if they can't just look at something in two seconds and know what to do. Yes. And so designing the whole thing became a whole a whole story on its own. And it yes. became what's called today now a clinical decision support. I right. think we should still call it a cooler name. Basically, what it does is that it takes genetic information and gives reports for physicians and patients so they can use it. It also has API connections so that if hospitals want to show it in a different way for their doctors, they can do it as well. It can also be integrated into mobile apps. We have our own standard mobile app as well. So that was like this other part of understanding and learning that we thought was it eventually became a core investment. Uh, with the NALA as well. Yeah, maybe I can add on that the interesting thing is very important is that four of us co-founders, we came up with our own knowledge, own expertise. Mm-hmm. And another important thing is that, for example, senior people like age-wise, I mean, me and JJ, <laughs> we never try to direct. They are basically running a company on their own. That's yeah. the thing. We just trying to support if there is anything in our kind of, you know, our comfort area. That's very important. We complement each other. Yeah, we make mistakes along the way. I get scolded by Sandro. Never mind. (laughs) I remember the first time actually JJ sat me down with my husband saying that your wife is going to go on a journey that there's no turning back. He did? Yes, remember? During a a dinner? With me? Yes, with you. And like, are you going to give her your blessings? Because she's going to put skin in the game and there's no turning back. So our fathers here, JJ and Sandro, are really like taking care of us. I'm just going to touch back on that. That's why I'm telling you, we're like a family. I'm suspecting that your husband was supportive at that point in time. Like, yeah, she had no choice. Like, what is this dinner about? Um, <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's, he was shocked. Yeah. But yeah. besides work, Astrid, she gave birth to very two beautiful babies. Yeah. yeah along the way, and yeah, yeah and I think excellent yeah. mom, excellent mm. family. Yeah. Yes, yes. So I never regretted anything that had happened. Touching back on that again, Astrid, in terms of the risks, I remember you were one of the first, if not the first, innovation fellow. I was part of the first batch. And you took that risk. And I remember that discussion and our lab meeting where JJ mentioned that you were moving away from what your projects were and into that innovation fellow. Right. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Because I believe it then ties into how the seed funding became Hmm. apparent. I think everything synergizes. A lot of the effort was from, I mean, the fundraising was from Levy as a CEO. But then, yes, the innovation fellow at that time started just right when Levy started her business degree. So she had a two-year trajectory to do her business degree, and I had a two-year trajectory to do my innovation fellowship during the time when Huck was an ED, right? We were given a little bit of seed funding. We were given a lot of mentorship about how to do business. 
it's like super out of my comfort zone. I'm like, oh my God, how are you going to do this? Okay, luckily I have a compliment person who loves doing the fundraising. So then I think all the things that I learned would be like ancillary to the actual things that Levy is trying to do. But then I think learning to, even on myself, I need to learn how to pitch, right? I had to be the one pitching. And so I remember when we got our first funding, the investor actually came to GIS and saw my work, saw your lab, Sandro. We talked to him and then we were the one basically pitching on the spot. And I think that kind of attracted him. So I think everyone really played a part in getting our first money in. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, maybe this innovation hmm. fellowship was quite interesting initiative and very useful. Two out of four people are now running business and quite successfully. So most important message there was, it's not just about how to raise funds and so on. This fellowship idea was to switch a researchers' mind from research to business. So something like that. And they gave you time to learn how to do that. And you had also, again, some freedom. In that time, even Levy was far away, but we've still been taking her nights because it was a big difference between US and us. And then she, we've been communicating, we've been uh, thinking, we've been dreaming. She works on her nights for the startup and in the mornings oh. and the afternoons for her school. So it was tough times, but exciting and challenging. Exciting. And both of us also had our own background stories about adverse reactions in our family that also driven us a little bit more because <laughs> my father's on the wheelchair, but actually was given a drug that caused him to have bleeding. That adverse reaction of bleeding might be caused by genes because anticoagulants have a lot of gene interactions. So, you know, all of this, we're just meant to be here and do something beyond impact to our family. It's almost like a calling, if I could say that. And that when you touched on the synergies between time points and how they really meshed, we've been looking back a little bit. If we could take a, a little snapshot of what Nala Genetics looks like now, and if you're comfortable enough to share, in terms of company locations, what sort of size are we talking about for Nala Genetics? I suspect the success means that your footprint's quite large. It's okay, I think, but it's timely that we just had our board meeting. <laughs> yes. So everyone's updated. We mostly have three business lines. So one is doing testing as a service. So we mostly test employers of companies and also patients from doctors by referring tests to our partner labs or our own lab in Singapore, because now we have one. Number two is by distributing the kits and software. So these are in markets where we found lab partners who are also distributors who want to run the test themselves. It's nice and they wanted to do it because our kit and software are regulatory approved. And a lot of these preemptive genetic testing has traditionally or most commonly known as a direct-to-consumer test. So it's not as validated as ours. So that has been a true and tried strategy. And the third one is moonshot projects, which is like trying to align more with national precision medicine. How do we create patient engagement tools of these 100,000, 1 million people who are going to be a part of the program? What do they get out of it? And how do they actually keep engaged with prevention and all these things that come after personalized, a large biobanking project like NPM? These are our three things. And we do it to a certain degree, to different intensities in Singapore, Indonesia, Malaysia, Vietnam, and Europe. We are signing a distributor there. And then we do like maybe 50 to 100 tests a month. And previously during COVID, obviously a lot more. <laughs> but now we're building up our traction again. But I think we're in a pretty good trajectory this year. It's a very ambitious goal. So in terms of those dynamics of the size of the company, thinking about other sizes and big data, I just heard you mention the SG100K or National Precision Medicine Program. How is your compute side of Nala Genetics looking? Could you take us through some of the analytics that you're already 
targeting from the SG10K or possibly if you're able to talk about anything to do with Space 2 SG100K? Yeah, so for SG100K, we're involved in two ways. Number one is by collaborating with Precise on the pharmacogenomics program to develop a patient engagement tool for pharmacogenomics. So it was interesting because when Precise came about, they had a clinical implementation accelerator for SG based on the SG10K idea. They wanted to get as many clinical implementations projects as possible that one day will be nationwide. So one of their problems was that, okay, if you get tested in any way for a pharmacogenomics panel and this person goes to Raffles Medical Group or SGH or any of the other clusters, how do we make sure that this information eventually gets distributed? We built an app where a patient can get their information on their mobile app, but it won't tell you what drug exactly you're going to take. And the recommendation of drug changes will only be shared with a doctor with a QR code. And they have to correctly input certain information so that certain cybersecurity measures. Yeah, exactly. So it's this patient-physician relationship that I thought was pretty clever. So hopefully more and more different use cases will follow through like this because it's wonderful. And currently we're talking to PRISM on how to scale their collaborations. I think the second one is more on the research side, which is related to the CIP2D6 project, analyzing the different frequencies or something like that. So Astrid, maybe you oh, want to share. We have a project with the SG10K data because we don't have enough information on the CIP2D6 variations in Asia. There's not a lot of publications. And even if they publish, they don't analyze it thoroughly enough to look at hybrid structural variations or hybrids. And so we utilize that data to crack some information. It's been cooking for a while, but with a lot of GIS members, Nicholas and and the likes, and we're about to start drafting the manuscript already. We found novel alleles. We found alleles that are just related to a, a certain ethnic group. These are valuable information to make sure when we do testing for the patients in this region, are we capturing what you actually need to test for? Because If we're doing qPCR, it's targeted, so we can't test everything under the sun, but we need to make sure that we're not excluding something that is important. I think that was the thing that we wanted to make sure. To make sure. And that's why it's very important to sequence Singaporeans. Absolutely. Which SG10K did. And for the listeners, the SG10K data set is publicly available and accessible through the Data Access Committee. And that's what you guys would have partnered with SG10K or NPM, Precise. Yes, absolutely. The dream is to be able to tell a million people their pharmacogenomics information, their nutrigenetics if some people want it, and then also for risk of their conditions, right? Because these are currently like clinically actionable things that can actually change the trajectory of how they're being taken care of in the healthcare system. So that that last part of interpretation, I think we're very, very keen to collaborate with. And that has been a lot of the compute, so to speak, or the analysis. And as we were mentioning, that's incorporating partnerships here still back at GIS, Mm. evidencing the continual relationship that goes on. Oh my gosh, yeah. My relationship with Nanyang Coffee Shop downstairs (laughs) is still my favorite coffee shop every time I go to GIS. Yeah, we go here a lot. Yeah, we were still inseparable. Touching back on the big data side, because it is very interesting, is it something that you could share in terms of what Resource dedication in terms of the human, the hardware, do you guys dedicate to your analytics side? Is it part of your strategy going forward to build up that side? Or So I think more on the product side, we have four different p- pillars. So software engineers, bioinformaticians, knowledge base, and data science, and also product management. So between these, they collaborate for different projects. They're coordinated in a system called PODs. So pods generally have parts of any of these engineers and bioinformaticians, but also inputs from business development, operations, regulatory approval, genetics, as well as clinical genetics. Currently, we have, I think, the software engineering team or that product team is about 40 people. 
more than half of our people are products. Yeah. Product development. And I think this year we're trying to build out more momentum on the business side. So we've built a lot. And I think this is time to gear and double down on robustness and making sure that the customers are really, really happy. So we're at that time where distribution and scaling is top of mind. And with fresh funding, maybe later down the road and grant applications, I think we can have different avenues that we're thinking of going, but that's still definitely in the work. So we're happy with the team that we have now. Oh, that's excellent. That's excellent to hear. And I hear these little words that come out during the conversation that I like to weave into what I have in other questions. And the one from that answer was scaling. So what does scaling look like on your horizon, maybe three years to five years? Is it something you're looking at 10x, 100x? Because in terms of NPM, there's a 10x scale up every two to three years, Yeah, yeah. which is challenging. I just wonder what the expectation for from your side or Nala Genetics, what you can take on for three to five years. Yeah. So this year we're planning to do 5x and then next year probably, I think the idea for next year is that there's going to be a completely different platform that I I don't know how many X's that will bring, (laughs) but I think we're benchmarking ourselves against a certain number of tests per month, which is something that we track, number of partnerships that we have, number of distributors and number of collaborations and publications. I think for our team, we try to be as lean as possible. So a lot of the trackable growth is really on the output side. One of my favorite stories about scaling is the fact that previously maybe one report may take about three hours to upload and render and finally integrate because we were doing like a prototype. And then now it takes less than 10 minutes for bulk report generation, right? So I think these are, and not only that, these are CIVD software as a medical device, which to me is really, really cool because otherwise you will have to check out so many different papers and whatnot. So these type of scaling stories are definitely happening in different avenues of the company, but our goal is to test up to a thousand a month or 850 or 1,000 a month, which is a goal that we set ourselves to. One thing that we wanted to be able to do well is not only on the product side, but also on the services side. How do we train our clients, for example? Because we're very much like a white labeling company where we work with Starfuls Medical Group or other people to provide the test for us. And I think at that point, we have to make them proud of the test that they're offering as well. So how do we scale our branding, our presence through ownership of this value proposition to their customers as well is something that me personally, I think is, is pretty top of mind outside because the product team has been running pretty well <laughs> by itself at this point. Yeah. yeah. Ambitious, but with what we've heard from the team so far, I don't think out of range at all in terms of 5X and beyond. I think we're probably getting to the end of our session here. I just have one brief question that maybe we could take a sentence from everyone. How do you define success for yourself and your team? Usually the company success is their numbers. That's for sure. We cannot ignore that. I always, as a social research person, I always measure success on what kind of impact we gave to the society, right? Right now, I already see that analogy noted they made quite some impact to the society in the region, not only just Singapore, but in the region as well. Success is also, again, as I mentioned, is to come to the world and see happy environment. That's another Success of success. Yes, absolutely. Success to me personally means to be able to do wonderful things with people that you love, but do it in a sustainable manner. It's not like a one weekend to Coachella or some music festival, but being able to just see Astrid every day or like chat with Sandra every time we have something to talk about or like chat with JJ on something that that is new or whatever that is and having that connection and making sure that It is sustainable for each one of us to keep driving this hard at this thing that we believe in is what success means to me personally. And I think for the rest of the team outside of the co-founding team, 
it's always the same vision and same purpose. I learned recently that it takes a very particular set of skills to be able to get everyone on the same page and to simplify messages and communicate it in a way that gets people going to the right direction on the team level. That's probably my definition. Very similar. To me, team success or personal success also means that I manage to, because I have all that passion and enthusiasm. How do you actually share that and make that relatable to the people who are working for the same vision? That is not an easy job when the company starts to grow bigger, right? We thought it was really easy. Everyone knows what to do. Yes. But then once the company gets bigger, different ways of communicating, different cultures, that's when as a person, I have to learn how to manage that and still learning. And so to me, we'll have to keep getting that message across, not just one time, two times, three times, four times, like every single biweekly meeting we have, we have all hands on deck. We reiterate our mission and vision again and again. Right. So, and then it's not just words, right? We need to show them what does that actually mean? So yeah, I think, I think being able to do that correctly and being able to have everybody on the same page and then reach that goal would then be something that I would look at as as success. Yeah. If I was to summarize what I heard there, sounds like to understand success, you need to have gone through the failures at certain points to know where to course correct and be comfortable with the failures that are coming up because your team all works together so well. Yeah. That's true. That's true. I think a lot of the culture that we've built in Nala is really coming from all the failures and hardships that we, mm-hmm. that we, we've reduced the amount of crying that we've done. <laughs> we've cried a lot. Yeah, every month there must be something. Oh, and there must be something. There but now it's like something. once every three months. We need to have a very strong foundation as well as, as the founding and executive member of the company, because without that, then it shakes, right? So then those sync ups, those alignments, those Crying together, right? They mean a lot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, and being comfortable enough, safe enough to be crying in front <laughs> yeah, of one yeah. another and, is and, another. And, and just comment, right? Yeah, that's why I'm like welcoming any scolding from anyone. <laughs> <laughs> okay, everyone is very happy and smiley. Is there anything else that you guys wanted to touch on that we hadn't already? Well, in Georgia, we propose toasts. Uh, we say that means gaumarchos, which means doesn't mean for your good health. It means for your victory. So, Gaumarjus to Knowledge Genetics. I wish you victory. Thanks, Andrew. Well said, well said. Yeah, and engaging. I want to thank everyone. So, Astrid, Levy, Sandro. So, we'll wrap it there for One North Stories, Knowledge Genetics. And now, some insights from JJ. This is Claire Bellis, and I have distinguished professor JJ Liu here from Genome Institute of Singapore. He's the fourth co-founder of Knowledge Genetics. So, JJ. You were just mentioning to us briefly that mm. you are the mentor. You are a little bit at arm's length, but I see it a different way that in the beginning, you were absolutely crucial to Nala Genetics and you being here at the Genome Institute for 20 years, congratulations, brought in talent that mm. started Nala Genetics yeah. and that was PhD students and master's students. Can you tell us about how that happened? started? Yes. I think there are a few things that happen, right? Some of them is probably just coincidentally fall into the same time, same place and make this whole thing happen. First of all, is Astrid is finished her PhDs and postdocs looking for a career, huh? what to do, right? At the time, she came join a faculty because her population is good and research is strong. And well, that's where we have a discussion. You know, I says, do you really want to go down the path to become academic professor. And you see, uh, the, I will see 
you can see glorious aspect of that, but you can also you should be able to see how the difficulty and all the、mm. frustrations along the way, right? You have to really ask yourself: Do you really enjoy the life or not? As academic、mm. professor, do you really enjoy that part or not? If you have a second thought about a hesitation, because that would be a long, painful process in front of you, you've chosen that path. If not, then it's a good time for you to think: What is alternative career path? I think that discussion stimulate her to think about all other things. Ah,、mm. the because otherwise, it's so natural for the postdoc to think about: Oh, I time for me to become independent professor somewhere. Same time, Levy. Levy is actually used to work in my lab, and then she is already. And if she join my lab, she already know she will go back to a school for MBA program. She always know she will do business. Okay, and but the exposure she had in my group is open hours to the genetics, pharmacogenomics,、mm-hmm. and give her idea something she care about. But she still remain to be fundamentally someone want to do business. At that time, she also finish up her MBA program at Harvard, and is also looking for what to do. She can probably go any other, you know, Harvard MBA to join another firm, or whatever.、Mm-hmm. But if she have that idea, spirit to want to pursuing her own business and say,、mm-hmm. it's good because I understand to start company is very very challenging. You also need good people, particularly you need good people in terms of technology and good people in the business. It's a very rare situation you got have in front of me. They have two girls. They have this passion for that, and they know each other because they they act in the same lab, you know, and、mm-hmm. all come from. Indonesia, so they share a lot of things. They're good friends, and for me, at that moment, to be able to stimulate the thinking, just think about that. This is a turn to the past. May actually turn to be more exciting for you. Just think about this. May happen. Help them to firm their thought and really commit themselves to do that. That's probably the most important role I play、mm-hmm. during that period of time, and be able for them. I want to touch on. How Astar supported that、mm. journey、yes. because I understand from Astrid and obviously I was part of your、mm. group during that time.、Yeah. Astrid was one of the initial innovation fellows either、yeah. here at GIS or across Astar. I think it is a really talk about beginning when the Astar embraced its entrepreneurship、mm. and tried to stimulate that activities to convince the young people's or even well-established PI to really explore the startup、mm. path, right? Because I think not only Astar, it's a whole Singapore believe that startup. Is actually another very viable path to create impact.、Mm-hmm. Always, people think about what is the biomedical research impact. Oh, you create IPs, you create a license, and that's it. This is the only way of thinking for us, right? Either you create a drug or whatever.、Mm. But now, more and more, more realize actually through the startup process, many more people can actually be involved in the translational aspect of this thing.、Mm. Instead of all the way we think, okay, I'm a scientist, I just create IP, I sell it, and somebody else do this. You basically cut yourself out of the whole translational. You have a limited com- direct contribution to the process, but if you allow you provide allow you to to try out a startup process, you will have a chance to participate more、mm. in the translation path.、Mm. In the same way, you probably have a better chance to create value for local system.、Mm. You can imagine if I'm a farmer, I come in to buy the IP, I take the IP, I go back to Boston, do my further development.、Mm. Nothing going to happen here. But what if all this IP know how? Can still in the Singapore,、mm-hmm. but a different team to be work on the startup、mm-hmm. path and the further development. Then there'll be more value to be captured. This is more value, Jojo. In this particular scenario as well, starting、yeah. with a use case in was it Stephen Stephen Johnson disease? Yes, it's called the DHS Damascene Hypersensitive Syndrome. It's a this is a very severe drug reactions for patients of leprosy because this is still 
a relevant disease for developing country. And this is what you're talking about, right? Which is starting with one idea. Yep. This is the one idea. And if you look at the journey that Nala genetics have taken yeah. over the years, yeah. they have been able to be agile enough to pivot to where the need is yep. and create that impact, yep. both here in Singapore, but also importantly in Indonesia. Mm. That's where they've really been able to have an impact, especially yeah. during COVID. From beginning, there's a single idea. Yes. And we have this fantastic scientific discovery. We know how to determine whether you're going to develop the side effect or not when you take the Dapsin if you are a leprosy patient. It's a single fantastic scientific discovery made up. Huh? That's one of the 20. A single genetic test, right? Still test. But sitting on the shelf, but sitting on the paper mm. uh, for a long time, nothing happened afterwards. The publication, yeah, right? It's a publication. That's it. No so translation. The, the point is that we feel like if we don't do translation, probably nobody else do it. Yeah. Because it's not like a rich country disease, right? You know, people willing to farmer going to take on this, do this. It's not this, a hot topic. Not a hot topic. Mm. Nobody wouldn't care about that. It's, it's, the Dapsin itself is so cheap drug. It's actually offered free mm. by WHO for everybody. So there's no real business there. Point. Mm. But it is for the patients. It is a big thing. It because it's a very, is. very high rate of death if you get it. So we think that's why we, at the beginning of the whole thing, we just believe one thing, create a company so that we can explore commercial paths to create impact. If the discovery remain on the publication there look like, it's not going anywhere. It still remain to be publication. Very impactful, high impact publication, <laughs> but still but that way. There's no further impact yes. beyond that part. If we can explore that startup path using one vehicle, they might be able to create to create that oh. impact. That's our starting point. I don't think at the moment we know, or probably we calculate, well, you're not going to make big, big business out of it. A single task or a limited number of people, <laughs> a poor country, how you can, we aim is, okay, we need to, we need to bring down a task with a couple of dollars, mm -hmm. $5 task, eventually cheap. With, with cheap. Mm. And you don't, you don't make a lot of money out of a cheap thing. That's just the whole thing. So that's why I see, this is starting point. That's mm. why I see this idea has been always remained to be the core value of the dollar. Mm. To think about, do you create impact and the benefit to the people? Mm. Yeah. We always think the Asian population need different solution. Mm -hmm. yeah. We understand Western countries have a lot of very good solution, mm -hmm. but expensive solution. Exactly. That may not fit this region mm -hmm. very well. What we need to offer to this region is something good, but most importantly, it has to be affordable. Mm -hmm. This is how, even at that moment, it developed the concept. So that's why I see from there, from single drug reaction mm -hmm. to multiple drug reaction. There's mm -hmm. plenty of other drugs, also drugs, also different. So this is a way of thinking gradually. See, if we can do this, should we offer more yes. to the community? Huh? To be now they're not even move on. If we can predict who's going to develop a reaction to the drug, can we but predict yeah. some people have an increased risk for other disease? The way of thinking is always is can we help to predict something? Can help to either change your treatment to make the treatment more safer, or actually help you to manage in the condition reduce the risk of developing cutting disease. Exactly. So still follow the same way of thinking. The company has to grow along this. I think maybe for established scientists want to start up but want to, does not want to be directly involved, maybe I can tell you how to manage it. You know, find the right young people, you feel like you can trust, let them go. And yeah. don't hold on the company yourself. Yeah. You are not the one going to make the company happen. Just let it go. And, and that will be the, probably the best for your own idea to become reality. Otherwise, it will always remain to be idea. If you hold on too tight and you don't have the time, don't have the energy to do that, Belief and patience. Definitely, yeah. you are. You are not. No. You're going to waste your ideas. Your ideas are good. It does not have to be you the one to make your idea become reality. Maybe somebody else better. Well, JJ, it's been excellent hearing this background from you mm -hmm. and tagging it onto the other three founders. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. And with that, thanks for listening. Please hit like and subscribe wherever you are getting your podcasts. Thanks for joining us for our launch series. 
and be sure to look out for future episodes as we explore the intersection of science, technology, and business in the growing Singapore deep tech scene together.